So good evening. So here we are on the final evening of the retreat and the last night of the year. And you made it. Almost. <laughs> Still a little bit more to go. Um, and I, I, I really want to say that it's been a privilege to be here with you. And I mean that from, the, from my heart. And I bow to the sincerity and the courage of each one of you. You know, I've been doing these practices for many, many years, and I know, I know what it's like to be doing what you're doing and what we're doing as well, but in very much this practice of presence, of loving presence. So, so thank you. And, you know, we've come from the, from the marketplace into the monastery, to use that metaphor, to do the, the inner work of the heart here. And tomorrow, we're returning to the marketplace. But it's not just any marketplace. Those of us living in the U.S. and those of us living in the world will be waking up very soon to a new period with the inauguration of a new president, Donald Trump, and a new administration. And for many of us, I think the time ahead looks challenging and somewhat unsettling. Maybe those are, um, what do you call them, uh, kind of understatements for some. Uh, but I don't want to use words that are more triggering than, uh, than necessary right now. Um, and just want to ch- begin with a question. Who here has been working over these days with strong emotions, mind states, feelings, connected with the outcome of the recent elections here and what the time ahead may bring? Would you just raise, raise hands? So a fair number of people. And for others... Um, maybe they may be coming and going and part of the kind of larger landscape of things. But what I want to say is that there is, if we have been feeling fear or anger or some other strong emotions, there's wisdom in our responses. When anger, fear, grief and other strong emotions arise, they are telling us something, aren't they? They're signals to be alert and to be responsive and to, you know, to get into action, do what we need to do. And where there's harm or danger, threats to the well-being, targeting of individuals or communities, it's clearly it's right for us to respond. It's appropriate. It's, it's what, needs to, what we need to do. But as, as we also know, there are wise ways of responding and unwise ways of responding. And our practices here, I think, help us discern the difference and help us to respond wisely to the suffering of the world. And this is a theme I want to explore this evening as we go from the monastery, from this place where we're so held and supported in the container of, of, of care by facility and by all of the, everyone who's helping to make this retreat happen and each other, then we go back into what may be a much more challenging and turbulent um, realities for, for many of us. So what I want to explore tonight is first how our practices, the, we might call them the inner practices without overstating the inner and the outer but, but just for convenience, talk about them as the inner practices of mindfulness, of loving kindness, of self-compassion, compassion more generally, equanimity. How these practices help us open our hearts to respond to the suffering of the world. How what we're doing here actually leads us leads outward to give us support as we go out into our homes and our communities and into our society. And, and 
deal with how, you know, what is, what are, what is a wise response? What is a compassionate response? What, what can make a difference? Um, so how can these practices help us cultivate a wise and a compassionate heart? So that's the first kind of theme, the first question. And the second is how the archetype, if you like, or the model, the vision of a, the bodhisattva, the being who commits herself, commits himself to the healing of the world, to, the, to all beings, to the freedom of all beings, the freedom and awakening of all beings. How this can provide us with, with a vision, with an aspiration as we go back into the world. So those are the two themes I want to explore this evening. And I want to really begin by sharing a statement that came out of Spirit Rock Meditation Center out on the West Coast in the Bay Area. Many of you may be familiar with Spirit Rock and the teachers there, you may have sat with some of them, friends and colleagues and, um, and a, a sister kind of older sister organization to IMCW and the other meditation communities. And this, um, they shared very recently a statement about their values and how they're responding to the time that we're living in. And I invite you to listen to this as I share it, uh, really as a kind of a meditation, because they're, they're, for me there's a real beauty in the and, and a courage in this, in this statement and a, and a clarity that can help inform what we're going to be exploring this evening and perhaps all of us as we go back out into the world. It begins, Spirit Rock, Statement of Values, Spiritual Sanctuary and Refuge. And they start with a, a quote from the Buddha. As long as a society holds regular and frequent assemblies, meeting in harmony and mutual respect, can they be expected to prosper and not decline? As long as a society follows the long-held traditions of wisdom and honors its elders, can they be expected to prosper and not decline? As long as a society protects the vulnerable among them, can they be expected to prosper and not decline? As long as a society cares for the shrines and sacred places of the natural world, can they be expected to prosper and not decline? This is from the Mahaparinirvana Sutta, a text of the Buddha's last teaching. So these are really the direct words to come down to us from the Buddha. And then the, the message from Spirit Rock begins, Dear Dharma friends, amidst the political and social challenges of our times and in light of our commitment to liberation, Spirit Rock declares itself to be a spiritual sanctuary and a refuge for all. We will honor and protect those who come here seeking the teachings of liberation. We are stewards of the Dharma. We build bridges, not walls. A climate of divisiveness and fear cannot alter our innate human goodness, and it will never change our values as an organization. Spirit Rock proclaims our continued commitment to the Buddha's teachings of wisdom, compassion in action, interdependence and loving kindness, excluding none. We reaffirm these 2,600-year-old Buddhist values in the face of cultures of violence and harm that threaten life on this planet and that differentially impact oppressed exploited and marginalized people, people of color, immigrants and refugees, poor people, women, indigenous, and LGBTQI peoples. We denounce racism, misogyny, xenophobia, trans and homophobia, and all forms of oppression and the valuation 
of certain lives over others. We value and celebrate diversity, inclusivity, and respect for all beings, and the inherent dignity of all peoples. The Buddhist path teaches that meditation and inner freedom must develop together with a foundation of generosity, ethical behavior, and loving kindness. We affirm that human happiness requires intentions that are free from greed, hatred, and cruelty. Speech that is true and helpful, not harsh, not vain, slanderous or abusive, and actions that are free from causing harm, killing, stealing, and sexual exploitation. We affirm the interdependent nature of reality. When one being suffers, we all suffer. Thus our own well-being and liberation is bound in the well-being and liberation of others. The only basis for Dharma life is virtue, respect, and mutual care. Knowing this truth, we will resist the destructive forces of hatred, discrimination, and recklessness, and offer the powerful alternatives of fierce love and compassion. With the earth as a witness, the Buddha proclaimed his right to liberation and taught that all beings have the right to liberation, to be free from the oppressive forces of greed, hatred, and ignorance. With the earth as our witness, we offer a sanctuary for all to awaken together. Spirit Rock will continue to be a light in our society to respond to constantly changing conditions and to offer practices, teachings, and refuge that nurture the internal life in support of external service. We practice not for ourselves, but for the welfare, happiness, and safety of all life everywhere. May all beings be free And may our actions contribute wholeheartedly to that freedom. I just invite you to sit for a moment with whatever is present for you in your body and your heart and your mind. I shared this statement of values and commitments because for me it expresses beautifully the aspiration of the Bodhisattva. A collective commitment, a collective Bodhisattva commitment of a community that says, this is where we stand. These are our values. These are what we, this is what we hold dear. They don't change with an election or a period of history. They are values and teachings and practices that support happiness, well-being and freedom, and we will stand by them. We will protect the vulnerable. We will respond to suffering, resist harm, and we will be a refuge. These are values and principles that have been a core of the Buddhist tradition and practice for 2,600 years. And they can be a great support for us today. And they resonate deeply with me. And they provide me with a real sense, a source of strength and courage as I go back out into the world. It feels that having this sense of, that we're, you know, amidst the, the claims that, My truth is as good as your truth. 
or that we can have all of our own truths, even if it flies in the face of everything that science and our own understanding tells us. Here, we're we're offered a statement that says, no, it's not like that. There are deep truths. Deep truths that we can touch from our our own inquiry, from our own awareness, from our own exploration of of reality by taking refuge in truth in the Dharma. So our world today is suffering. I don't is is really is caught in suffering. I don't need to tell you that. Um, and it's calling for our compassionate engagement. I think of the situation in Syria which is kind of on you know, in our view, practically every night if we're watching the news or reading our newspapers. And I think of just three images come, come into to my mind as I think, when I think of Syria. And I've been involved, I'll talk a little in a while about some of my own involvement in relation to the crisis there. But three images come to me. The, the, you, you may remember the photo of the child who's sitting in a car and in a car seat covered in debris and rubble, and looking out after a building is bombed, looking out with a stunned expression. You know, this child that knows nothing about what, what is this all about? What are people fighting about? You know, and yet this, is, this child is, is holding this as, this as their life. And the other, another is of a three-year-old child. You may, the very, very well-known picture of a child drowned on the beach as the family tried to escape to Europe, you know, escape the, 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 the violence of Syria, and the, the, the aid worker holding, holding that child. And a third one came, comes to me of an aerial picture of the city of Aleppo, this ancient city of rich in culture, going back over a thousand years. And looking out at it, it's like, you know, the, the devastation is extraordinary. And, and, and I said to myself, what does that remind me of? And, and it came to me, it's Hiroshima. You know, it's like that level of destruction and it's happening. You know, and we ask ourselves, you know, why is this happening in our world? And what can I do? You know, and, and here, how can what we're doing here, these practices, these heart practices, these practices of mindfulness and loving awareness and compassion and loving kindness, how can they help us strengthen our hearts, build the strength to, to really respond? Because as humans, we're We're faced with it really with a choice, you know. Do we respond or not respond? And either way, there's some level of suffering. You know, there's a, the suffering at least of first, at first of reaching out. It can feel too much. You know, people talk about compassion fatigue. How can I take it all in? There's too much for me to take in. And then, and then the other is the, is the suffering of turning away, isn't it? You know, when we say, you know, we resist we resist because we feel it's too much. And, and understandably, at times, we do have to step away. Completely understandable. But if we shut down completely, we're suffering too. It's a beautiful statement from Franz Kafka, which I don't associate with Dharma talks, but it has a <laughs> amazing wisdom. He says, you can hold back from the suffering of the world. You have free permission to do so. And it is in accordance with your nature. But perhaps this very holding back is the one suffering you could have avoided. This holding back is the one suffering you could have avoided. So that, that, that's very much been in my awareness and maybe many of yours as well. And there are so many other places that we could talk about. And that, but that's just been so front and center in the world on the world stage. And then we're seeing and experiencing the suffering of our world closer to home too. We see in our own political system a move towards intolerance, 
towards fear of the other, whether the other be immigrants or people of other religions or other, i.e. non-white races and other non-dominant expressions of sexuality or gender. You know, the sense of, you know, the fear, we can create the fear by saying it's them, it's them. They're the ones we should get rid of, keep out, whatever it is that, you know, will we'll, we'll um, gin up um, support and, and votes or whatever we're looking, uh, we're looking for. So we experience the suffering, the pain in our own bodies, in our hearts and minds, don't we? I mean, there's no way that we can't be. You know, we, we're all familiar, I think, with mirror neurons. Why? If I see you, you know, slamming your hand into something or cutting yourself, then I'm, I'm immediately going to respond, you know. You know um, not even all humans, they found that with monkeys, didn't they, that the... That, that, that that's the response, a natural response. It's built into our evolutionary wiring. And it can be hard to hold the pain of the refugees, of the vulnerable communities afraid for their futures. It can be hold, hard to hold our own pain and fear at what we see unfolding. You know, the threats to the laws and the court system and, the, and, the, and our own rights and freedoms. Much has been promised that is very painful to our hearts. And much has already happened and is happening with attacks and intimidation against vulnerable individuals and communities that's deeply painful. And there's this this sense of of what's next, what's what's going to come. And so so we we live with this, don't we? And, and, And these... These teachings, these practices that we've been exploring together, I think, are, are, can be a, an enormous support as we, as we go into the world, as we say, okay, what is it that I can do? How can I respond? How can I serve? How can I help? So how does the... How, does the, how do we understand the suffering of the world this time? And how does the Dharma help us work with the suffering? Charles Eisenstein, in his book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible, speaks about this as a time between two stories. One story based on separation that we've been living in for for a long time, you know, getting what we can and creating others and, you know, what in Buddhism we call greed, hatred and delusion. And a story that's coming into into being, that's grounded on interbeing, on interconnection, on our connection with one another, on this, on a, on compassion, on, in in love. And Tara has talked about this book in her talks in recent, recent months. And, and it's a wonderful book, and, and, and I, I, I strongly encourage you to explore it with a sense of, you know, living in, living in this kind of liminal space, almost, you know, you could think of it as a kind of a bardo stage between one birth, you know, a, a death and a birth, you know, and there's been a lot of talk about death and, and rebirth. And our practices here can be seen as part of writing the story of interbeing and moving away from the collective unawareness that, that Anam spoken, spoke so beautifully about last night. And there was another kind of way of looking at the time we're living in that, that I was very um, taken by and it really spoke to me. And some of you may, may have seen this um, Went, went, kind of went viral in recent, recent weeks, the last month or so. And it was a post called um, Carly Takes America, I'm oh. With Her. <laughs> Carly Takes America, I'm With Her. And, and it's uh, Vera de Chalambert. Chalambert. Apologies to French speakers. Vera de Chalambert. Camembert, yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Vera. No offense. 
and she talks about the recent developments in the, in, in the U.S. particularly, but in the world at large, as a going down into the darkness, going down into the darkness, and not seeing this as a bad thing, but rather as a necessary journey to healing and rebirth, this going down into the darkness. And it's very, kind of has a lot of parallels with um, the story Tara shared, the skeleton woman story last, uh, two nights ago. And uh, Vera, who I'll just call Vera for now. <laughs> we know each other well. <laughs> she she re- begins, last year Kali, who's the, the, India, uh, the Hindu goddess of death, destruction, and resurrection appeared on the Empire State Building. It was this image of Kali was projected as kind of on the, on the Empire State Building as an avatar of conservation, you know, in, in, the, in the struggle around climate change by, by filmmakers. So they kind of put it up there. And she, um, the author of the article, Vera, um, uh, wrote a blog at the time called Carly Takes New York. Carly Takes New York. And that, that went viral. And so, Vera, um, after our recent elections, she wrote, Carly Takes America, I'm with her. And I want to just share a little bit from that article about kind of going down into the darkness. Um, so speaking of the election, she says, Carly, you know, and the image is just parenthesis, the image of Carly is carrying a, a sword and, a, and a, the head of a, of a demon and skulls around her neck. And, and, and it's, the, it's the kind of the, this energy of, of, of destruction, um, creative destruction, really. And, and, and so she says, Carly has brought down our house in a shocking blow. All the illusions of America stripped in a single night. We are not who we thought we were. Now we must get ready to stand in her fires of transmutation. We need them. We must stop shining the false light. As our heart breaks, as our veneer cracks, we open to more integrity, more truth, more tenderness. We stop trying to be all things for all people. We become this one small thing, feigning nothing. She quotes Ralph Waldo Emerson, only to the degree that people are unsettled is there any hope for them. Only to the degree that people are unsettled is there any hope for them. And she continues, Paradoxically, the price of true hope, it seems, is being unsettled beyond repair. And this is exactly the opportunity our political moment is presenting to us all. I think that this moment gives us an opportunity for reckoning only if, instead of running for the light, we let ourselves go fully into the dark. If instead of resolving our discomfort too quickly, we consider the possibility of staying in the uncomfortable, in the irreconcilable, in the unsettled. Before we rush in to reanimate the discourse of hope Prematurely, we must yield to what is present. Receptivity is the great quality of darkness. Darkness hosts everything without exception. The dark mother has no orphans. We must not send suffering into exile. The fear, the heartbreak, the anger, the helplessness, all are appropriate. All are welcome. We can't dismember ourselves to feel better. We can't cut off the stream of life and expect to heal.
So I'll just leave the kind of the quote from there, and there's much more in very much in the same vein. And this, for me, this metaphor of going into the darkness really res- resonates. And I think it's a metaphor for our practice here on retreat, opening to what is unexamined, what is unloved, what is below that line. It seems that our way of living together on the earth has, has reached a point of crisis. And we're in a great unknown. And the teachings and practices that we've been exploring, practicing together over these days, I believe can be an extraordinary support for us in these difficult times. And it's not by making a separation between doing our inner work and somehow leaving the outer work out there to take care of itself. You know, I think we're called into, we're called into engagement because we're part of the world and the world, we're in the world and the world is in us and there's no separation. So, um, so to attempt to somehow make a false separation is to cut off part of ourselves. And so the exploration is how do we do this wisely, appropriately, compassionately, effectively. You know, it's not by, you know, tightening up and forcing ourselves into it as though we're running against a wall, you know, and just kind of forcing ourselves through. So how do we do it? So I want to take these teachings and practices that we've been sharing together and explore how they can help us respond to the suffering of the world. How do these teachings and practices help support us in meeting our experience wisely and kindly and in responding to the suffering of the world? I share a few ways in which I think I think our practice can can be of great support to us. And the first is in helping us see beyond us and them. Beyond us and them to us, to the largest us, the the us that excludes no one, where everyone and everything is included. And that's really the, the, the bodhisattva vow to to serve all beings, to save all beings, to not make this separation, you know, the ones we like or the ones we're close to. You know, and our practices help us in this cultivation. So when we open to our own anger, to our fear, our jealousy, our rage, our despair, our helplessness, all of the mind states, all of the painful and afflictive mind states that arise, we see that these emotions and these mind states are not solid. You know, have you seen that at all? That if you really can open to sadness, you know, that you might have kept away, or anger, that you've allowed it to come in, that it's much more like, a, like an, an energy moving through us, you know, like a weather system. You know, and, there, it, and it, isn't, it isn't problematical. It can be an upheaval. Absolutely. But it's not like something that we have to keep out there as, you know, I can't, I've got to separate myself from that because it's too much. Sometimes we can feel this. And then our practice is to kindly, compassionately find our way of, of how can I go in there to, to, so that I can include this too. You know, our practice, I think, is keeping going outward to include this too and going inward to include this too. So these energies are not in themselves problematical. They're natural energies of life. But they do, we experience them as a problem. And they manifest as suffering when we don't meet them or we can't meet them with compassion and with wise attention, with loving awareness, with loving presence. I think one of the things that we see is that all of the afflictive states that we see being acted out in the world and they're not hard for us to see, we can see arising in ourselves. Does that make sense? I mean, do you see that, 
you know, the people that we think of the other doing the bad things out there. Can you see in yourself those seeds, those expressions? You know, not necessarily that you're going to do the same thing, but that, that if you didn't bring awareness to this energy, these feelings, these emotions, that you too could, could be acting in those ways. This is not in any way to justify harmful behavior, but it's to appreciate and understand that, these, the, that it's all of us share, all beings share these, uh, these emotions and the mind states. And it's really a, it's a question not of whether we, we're angry or whether we're sad or whether we feel rage or helplessness, but how do we hold this experience? How do we meet it? So all of the afflictive states we see being acted out in the world, we can see arising in ourselves. We see the seeds and expressions of greed, anger, jealousy. And we can train ourselves not to feed them. So rather than you know, the division of good people and bad people, dividing the world into us and them, we can see it's much more wise action and unwise action, skillful choice, an unskillful choice. And that this is what we're cultivating. We're cultivating the heart and mind that can make the skillful choices, that can help heal our hearts and help heal the world. Because we know if we were to just not make those choices or we've made other choices or we just weren't even aware that there was a possibility of, of another way of doing things, but we're so habituated to certain beliefs and ways of being, that we could just as easily, you know, be acting out those, those harmful actions in the world. There's a beautiful poem that many of you may be familiar with from Thich Nhat Hanh, um, Please Call Me By My True Names. And just a few lines from that poem, I think, really capture a lot. Um, he says, I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee, on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. And I think that last, not yet capable, not yet capable. You know, that we all, however harmful our actions, however harmful our words, whatever we're doing, that we have still have this, this awakening heart, this quality, this Buddha nature. So knowing this and seeing this through our practice, we can, seeing the way afflictive states of heart and mind can be transformed when open to with loving presence, it helps us to engage in the difficult issues that we will be faced with. I think every one of us will, in one way, in one expression of or another, in the time ahead. We can meet the difficult issues with fierce compassion and with love, without creating enemies, without creating separation, without demonizing others for their views and beliefs. We can say, no, this is harmful, without saying, and I'm going to destroy you, or I hate you. You know, we can discern that difference, that balance, that meeting of wisdom and compassion, you know, that, that, that helps us to hold this. As our hearts open, we can let more in. We take the suffering less personally. And when we come in contact with suffering, we're able to open to it rather than turning away. And this really is the path of the Bodhisattva. What we're cultivating over these days in our practice really is the path of the Bodhisattva, to let our heart be open to our own suffering and the suffering of the world. And there's not a separation between those. So this is the practice. And the, the Bodhisattva, really the, the additional piece, if you like, is the intentionality that we go out with. It's kind of bringing it together and saying, as I go out, I want to heal the suffering. And this is how I want to do it. I want to, I want to be, you know, a, a boat to help cross the river. And all of the other beautiful images of how we can be a bodhisattva in the world.
A second way that our practice can serve us in responding to the suffering of the world is by building our resilience and our courage to engage, to, to support vulnerable communities who are being targeted, to defend against attempts to erode civil rights, human rights, to support reality rather than denial on climate issues, and to put forward a vision of how we can live together that's based in love and compassion rather than in separation. So building the courage and resilience, I think that's really part of what we're doing here as well. As we open to our fears, to our anger, to our grief with a compassionate heart, we strengthen our capacity and our courage to respond wisely and be a force of healing and of compassion. This really is the Bodhisattva path. Earlier this month, I was in Jordan um, near the Dead Sea, and I was there helping to lead a a resilience training. It was a training for humanitarian aid workers. And it was a training with many of the same practices and teachings that we, we engage in here on retreat. Practices of meditation, including mindfulness and loving kindness, mindful movement, as well as psychosocial skills, um, understanding of trauma, understanding of stress, and how they work in our nervous systems, all of that. That's a piece we're kind of, we don't so much get explicitly get into here, but really, really the same practices we do here. And the aid workers were mainly from the Middle East, mainly born and raised there. Some, some were from Europe and some from North America. And they were all based in the region. They, they were in Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, um, all, all there. Um, and they were all supporting refugees and people displaced by the war in Syria. And the purpose of the training is to provide the aid workers the first responders to the suffering of the refugees and civilians. You know, I think of them as like the equivalent of the, you know, the EMT and the, the fire and the ambulance in, in our culture. You know, they're there. They're, they're the ones ca- picking up that child on the beach or, or giving medical treatment to the child who's been com- brought out from a, a bombing. And they're faced with enormous pressures, enormous, you know, potential traumas, uh, enormous stresses. And the purpose then is to provide them with, help them build their resilience. You know, based on the awareness that the more we strengthen our own capacity to, our capacity to be with our experience, with our own bodily sensations, with our emotions, with our feelings and our thoughts, in exactly the ways that we're we're doing here, the more effective we're going to be in supporting others. You know, that's that wonderful kind of image and metaphor of when we get on, a, get on a plane and it's about to take off and the instructions we're given, you know, we all know it, I'm sure, probably, that we, um, you know, put on your own mask first in an emergency before assisting others. You know, if we're trying to assist others when we, we kind of can't breathe ourselves, how effective are we going to be? If we're an aid worker and we're completely stressed out and we're traumatized, how are we going to be able to respond without being burned out? And burnout is huge, as you may know, within the humanitarian aid community. I mean, how could it not be? And so the, the, the program that I'm a part of is, is to really make these practices and these skills, the, this training in resilience available as widely as possible so that, so that the first responders to the suffering of, of the world, that our world is, you know, all, you know, what we collectively are creating, are able to respond. Because how helpful can they be if they're not able to meet their own experiences, their own fears, their own emotions, their own triggers with, with kindness, with compassion, with love. I see how in doing this work myself, it helps me connect 
with the suffering of others. I've, I've been made aware really clearly how, how, how different it is to be actually doing that work than to be at home thinking about how things might unfold over the coming months, you know. I feel the latter more stressful, you know. It's like, you know, when you're in there and you're doing it and you're faced with, you know, just doing what you can, the best you can, then it's a different reality. So much of our suffering is caught up in the stories in our minds. Have you found that? Have you noticed that? So we see this in what we're doing together, building the capacity of our hearts to respond to sorrow and joy, to pains and pleasures, our own and others, with a loving heart, strengthening our resilience to engage in the world and serve others and serve our world. And this again is is the Bodhisattva path. So, just for the 60 seconds, I just invite you to close your eyes and just reflect for a moment. What, what does it mean to you? What, is, what does resilience mean to you? What are the skills and practices and the tools that can help you be most effective and most responsive to the needs of those who are, who are suffering. It might be in your community. You know, if you're, if you're in, in a vulnerable community or working with vulnerable individuals or, or with your family or in your neighborhood or in the wider society. Someone shared in the, or after a group meeting today how immediately after, um, after the election she signed up for a bystander training. Uh, and a bystander training is, you know, training for what you do when you see somebody being victimized. You know, somebody being picked on because of their race or their skin color or their sexual, sexual orientation or anything that, that kind of makes them, them another. What do you do when, when you're someone who, you know, who's observing this? How do you do this? And the skills you can develop and we can train to do that. And I thought that was a beautiful example of how, you know, how we can, we can choose to, um, to build our resilience, to build our, our capacity to have our heart be open and also have te- techniques and skills that can, can help us in that way in the real world, in the, in the world. So just to, anything that might come up for you and, and also just, you know, what might support you, what might help you in, in cultivating a, a resilience. You know, it might be, hopefully have time in a little, at the end of the meditation, at the end of the talk for another meditation. But what can support you? What, you know, it's part of this kind of go, reflection on going back out into the world. What will support you? You know, I think... You know, I think of increasing the, the length of my meditation, you know, each day, you know, doubling the amount of time to be able to, you know, just have that more, much more space. I think of the Dalai Lama taking four hours from, I think, three to seven in the morning or something, somewhere in that period to meditate and reflect. And, you know, so there's building this capacity. So just when, when you're ready, if you like, to just coming back to opening your eyes. So there's many other things in the practice but, um, that, that can build, help, help, help us build the capacity of our hearts to, to respond. Um, but one thing I just say is that these practices help us move towards wise action. We can see that there is a wisdom and intelligence in fear and anger and other emotions. We can see that everything that arises when met with awareness and with compassion, when met in loving presence, becomes the fuel for freedom, for opening our hearts. And when the heart opens, a natural response when we confront suffering is to respond with compassion, with what can I do to help? It's kind of the, the, 
the quivering of the heart in response to suffering, as compassion is often called. Tara gave a couple of talks um, a few weeks ago following the elections, um, really on the Bodhisattva path, and, and took as the theme the, um, the a beautiful line from, uh, from Leonard Cohen, dearly beloved and recently departed Bodhisattva of the heart, Leonard. Leonard. And the, the line, um, there was the t- title was, From Bitter Searching of the Heart, We Rise to play a greater part. From bitter searching of the heart, we rise to play a greater part. And it's a beautiful reflection. It's a lovely song. But it's a, it's a, it's this sense of what we're doing here. Bitter searching of the heart. You know, has everything been easy for you over these four, four or five days? Anyone? <laughs> you know, it's, it's like it's, it's part of what we sign up for, isn't it? That this is... That, that we're going to confront these things. We're going to go into the darkness. And so it is a bitter searching of the heart, but through this bitter searching, we can rise to play a greater part. And this is really the path of the Bodhisattva, to rise to play a greater part. This, this is a time more than any other time that I can recall in my lifetime. And I am not getting younger. But calls on us to be bodhisattvas, to enter into the suffering of the world with our hearts open and vulnerable, and to make a heart commitment to serve our world and to serve all beings. There's a, the bodhisattva vow, there's a, the, the um, eighth century Buddhist teacher, Shantideva, has a, hundreds and hundreds of long Uh, verses of the Bodhisattva, his Bodhisattva vow. But just one of them is, may I be a protector to the helpless, a guide to those traveling the path, a boat for those requiring it, a lamp for those in darkness. May I be a home for the homeless and a servant for the world. And this is a beautiful aspiration Sometimes it can seem like it's too idealized. How can I save all beings? And the intention is not to have some unattainable, idealized view of, oh, this is what I should do. But it's rather, it's, it's letting our heart be open and doing whatever we can to help serve our suffering world. Opening the heart with intention, with dedication, with courage. The the Bodhisattva is really an archetype. And it doesn't mean that we're always going to be coming from our most spacious or the deepest version of ourselves. Sometimes, even when we, we, we take a commitment, we make a commitment, we take a Bodhisattva vow of healing the suffering of the world, sometimes we may be reaching out to heal while we're feeling really broken. You know, I love that's where Leonard Cohen, a lot of his songs come from. You know, the, the, the wretched and the broken. And out of that, the heart opens. You know, um, the, um, there is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. You know, I feel Leonard strongly deserves to be in our room tonight. <laughs> I think he is. He's certainly here in, in my heart. And so um, I just want to finish with, with a, a reflection. And um, I want to use um, Jack Cornfield's wonderful book, um, um, a, a reflection in his book on his book, The Wise Heart, where it, he talks about three qualities of a bodhisattva or a spiritual warrior. And I, the first time na- I want to name, because we've, I've already talked about them, and I just want to focus in on the third. But I'll name the first two. First, she or he begins by acknowledging and accepting the truth of their situation. Just acknowledging, taking refuge in the truth, in reality, in the Dharma. Not that it's right or it's just, but that, that it's a reality. And then they face the truth. They turn towards the difficulties and shine the light of understanding on them. So that's really what we've been doing here. We've been turning towards the 
examined places, the unloved places, and shining the light of understanding on them. This has been our practice here. And this is the first practice of, of cultivating this quality of the bodhisattva heart. The second, Jack, goes on to say, it's the bodhisattva works to find peace in herself by engaging in a training or practices to let go of painful and afflictive states such as anger and greed and hatred and developing positive ones, heart-opening ones like love and compassion and equanimity. And that again is what we've been doing here, seeing the painful states arise and seeing their emptiness ultimately and cultivating, letting, letting them go, seeing that they can pass through us like a weather system and seeing and cultivating those qualities that ennoble our hearts, that help to keep our heart open. So those are practices that we've really been doing here to cultivate the heart of the bodhisattva. And the third is really the vision. She envisions actions and a path of liberation for herself, her community, and her world, and commits to working for those ends. So Jack says, envisioning has enormous power. With our vision and imagination, we can help create the future. Envisioning sets our, our direction marshals our resources, makes the unmanifest possible. And Tara, earlier today, there was a a kind of a visioning from our future self. And this is an envisioning in the Bodhisattva, this reflection on what we might do. And I'm going to finish with this and and invite us to just come for a a couple of minutes into kind of a, a meditative, reflective just sitting in a way that's comfortable for you. Let me just take a a moment to do anything that feels will be helpful in relaxing. Just feeling a sense of ease in being here. So just a reflection of as we move towards leaving here and remembering that to use all of our moments remaining to us with, with awareness and with presence. But as we move back towards going out into the world, is there an aspiration? Is there a bodhisattva aspiration for you of serving and healing that can help guide you in the period ahead. You know, I gave the, the, the example earlier of the bystander training that, that one of the yogis shared of, as a way of building strength and resilience and strengthening the heart to move forward and making that commitment to serve. One for me is just perhaps um, seeing if we can build a group in the Washington area of people committed to, for a year, to, to engaging wisely and compassionately with the suffering of the world and meeting on a regular basis to explore that. We did that with mindful politics in the months behind gone by. Those are just some examples. But is there something that for you that can help support yourself and others, vulnerable individuals, communities? And anything that can support you in making and carrying out this commitment? I'll just sit quietly for a minute or so and just reflect.
I'm going to invite Glenn to cue up a song to um, finish off the uh, time, this time together, this period of talk. Thank you for your kind attention and I hope something in what I shared may be of help to you as you go back into, back out into the world. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.